before we look further at God's word, let me pray for us. Lord God, you have worked out your salvation plan, which you, which you planned before the creation of the world. And we thank you for this amazing milestone of the sending of your Son into the world. And as we celebrate that again this Christmas, uh, please, we pray, may we truly worship you and rejoice in this amazing, incredible act of grace and mercy to us. As we look today at this probably familiar passage to many of us, we pray that you would bring home the truths of these passages in a fresh way to us this morning. And we ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. A five-year-old boy goes up to his dad and says, Dad, where do I come from? Well, the father thinks, oh no. I knew this question would come one day. Uh, do we go for the birds or the bees and fob him off, or do we actually tell him the facts? So, well, he decides to take the plunge. He decides he's going to tell him the facts. Well, uh, after half an hour of uh, bumbling his way through embarrassing details about where baby, babies come from, the son looks up and says, Dad, this is all very interesting, but I just want to know where I come from. Uh, Jimmy Smith from down the road comes from England. Where do I come from? Well... It's an important question. Where do I come from? And this is especially if you're adopted. Uh, what is even more important is where Jesus comes from. What are his origins? And therefore, who is he? Uh, to the people of his day, Jesus would have seemed in many ways like a very unimpressive figure from an, an obscure Galilean town. And likewise today, many would relegate Jesus to being an obscure, unimportant figure from the ancient Near East history. And we and they need to therefore understand who Jesus really is. And Matthew chapter 1 tells us that. Uh, what it does is it breaks it, uh, the actual chapter breaks down into two halves. Uh, the first half is in verses 1 to 17, which tells us the significance of of Jesus' origins. And then the second half, verses 18 to 25, gives us the explanation of Jesus' origins. So firstly, uh, the significance of Jesus' origins. Uh, the genealogy in chapter 1, it begins to tell us the story about who Jesus is and where he came from. A look at verse 1. A record of the genealogy, that means the origin, of Jesus Christ. Now, let's face it, uh, it's probably one of the most boring ways you could possibly start a book of the Bible. And yet, it is the way that God decided to start Matthew chapter 1. And as we're going to see, it is deeply significant for our understanding of Jesus. Uh, when we read all those words, if we're doing a Bible reading in our personal devotions, aren't we tempted just to skip over it and get on to the real narrative, the real story? Uh, at first reading, it's hard to digest, isn't it? Uh, a long list of names. Uh, Rod did a very good job of reading them all. Uh, if you know your Old Testament, some of these names are familiar, and yet some would be more obscure. But who are they, and what is the point? Well, in the nutshell, the list of names puts Jesus in a context. 
the whole of the Old Testament is compressed down into these 17 verses. And they trace the story of Israel that ends at the footstep of Jesus the Messiah. The genealogy underlines the importance of the one who comes at its end, Jesus. What it does is it establishes Jesus' religious credibility, that he is the legally appointed Messiah. You see, Jesus doesn't hang in a vacuum. Jesus is connected to promises and purposes declared by God prior to his coming. So again, verse 1 a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. As we know, Christ is not his surname, it's a title. It means the promised king. It means the Messiah, the promised deliverer. Uh, Verse 1 continues, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. What Matthew's gospel is doing is linking Jesus to these two key figures of the Old Testament. Uh, Firstly, uh, to Abraham. And the promises given to Abraham a thousand years before Jesus turned up and took on flesh. Uh, Back in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. And so, by linking Jesus to Abraham, we are being told that Jesus is now that agent of world blessing. Uh, Secondly, of course, Jesus was connected to David, King David. He lived a thousand years before Christ. And he's connected to David and also the promises that God made to David. For those, we go to 2 Samuel 7. God says to King David... When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God promises an offspring of David whose glorious rule and reign will last forever. And in Jesus, all of God's promises come together. They point to him and they are wonderfully fulfilled in him. So, uh, having put the claim on the table, Matthew's gospel goes on to present the legal paperwork to support the claim. And what follows, verse 1, is a succinct summary of the history of Israel. And at the end of that genealogy, in verse 17, it's broken down, isn't it, helpfully, into three sections. Abraham to David, David to exile, and the exile then to Christ. So let's look at each of those in turn. So in the first section, we move from Abraham to David. And we see there the building of a nation, ultimately under a king. Uh, It starts with the promise we've already seen, given to this old Iraqi pensioner, Abraham, that there would be, from his line, a great nation. By the time you get to King David, a thousand years later, God's people are now, indeed, a great nation. They're living in God's land under God's king, David. And that is the high point, the high point. Then we enter the second period, which charts tragically the decline of the nation and the decline, indeed, of the kingship. It moves from David to the one on the last of the Old Testament Israelite kings, 
Jeconiah. But by the time of Jeconiah, the nation had become spiritually corrupt. It had turned its back on God. And consequently, God withdrew the blessings. And the nation was sent into exile in Babylon. No more temple, no more land, no more king. And so now, God's people are not living in God's land. And they are no longer under God's king. And the question that hangs in the air thereafter is, so what has happened to God's promises? There's no savior to bless the world. There's no king to rule the world. But the promises to Abraham and to David still stand. And so in the third period, it moves from the exile to the Christ, the promised king, the climax of the whole genealogy. And it concludes in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. The wait had ended. The roller coaster had finally come to an end, and his name is Jesus. So, having first seen the significance of Jesus' origins, we now move on to an explanation of Jesus' origins in verses 18 to 25. Did you notice uh, the tricky foot shuffle when the genealogy gets to Jesus? Uh, the repeated formula of uh, X being the father of Y is not used for Joseph to Jesus. It says in 1 verse 16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. There is some irregularity in Jesus' origins that requires an explanation. And Matthew provides that in the rest of the chapter. Uh, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. You see, the origin of Jesus is, of course, both human and divine. Mary became his mother while she was still pledged to be married. Now, there's nothing particularly remarkable about that in itself. Uh, 56,000 kids are born every year in Australia without mums and dads having tied the knot. What makes this pregnancy significant is that it happened not outside of marriage, but outside of sexual intercourse. It says, before they came together, she was found to be with child. And therefore, this pregnancy is not the result of a one-night stand, but the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And this carries profound implications. Because Jesus was born of a woman, he is fully human. But because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was also fully God, God incarnate. In one sense, the, carnation, the incarnation was a staggering surprise. Who would have ever thought that God would take on human flesh? And yet, in another sense, the incarnation was to be expected, for indeed, it had been predicted. 
uh, under God's direction, 600 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had looked ahead to the birth of the Messiah. And verse 22 quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And it says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mary's son is given the name Emmanuel, God with us. It's the, that name we have sung about. And the wonder here is not that a child is born outside of sexual intercourse, a virgin will be with child. The wonder here is that God has become a man. He shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And initially, uh, Joseph does not know that Mary's conception is through the Holy Spirit. And when he discovers his fiancée is pregnant, he suspects the worse. And let's face it, who wouldn't? Yet he's a godly man. Uh, no doubt he was shocked. No doubt he was hurt. But he still acts with care and compassion towards Mary. Verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. At this time, uh, Joseph was not yet her husband. Uh, verse 18 again. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Uh, they were engaged. But an engagement then was very different to an engagement now. Uh, for us today, until we say, I do, we are free to walk away. But in Joseph's culture, an engagement was permanent. The only way you could break an engagement then was either through death or through a formal divorce. Yet infidelity would give Joseph the grounds to break the engagement. And that's what he resolves to do. He thinks that Mary's been unfaithful to him. But if he does that, all of God's plan falls apart. If Joseph divorces Mary, God's salvation plan would lose its legal legitimacy. Because technically... Jesus would become an illegitimate child. And he would deprive Jesus then of the necessary legal connection with the Davidic line. So what happens? God intervenes. He sends an angel who appears to Joseph in a dream. And he says in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, this Joseph does in verses 24 to 25, and he marries Mary and names the child, verse 25, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now what happens here is very significant. What Joseph is doing is he's recognizing Mary's child as his own. He is making him a legitimate son. In other words, he is adopting him. If any of you are adopted, understand that the Savior of the world knows what it's like to be adopted. 
his father was actually not his natural father. And the adoption of Jesus is critical in two ways, and they're different ways. Firstly, it means Jesus is included in the Davidic line. Legally, it provides continuity of Jesus with his ancestors. If he is truly the promised descendant of Abraham and David, then that is essential. And do you see the irony? God's natural and one and only Son, the Son of God, is adopted into a human family. Why? So that we, naturally, sons and daughters of humans, could be adopted into God's family. Isn't that beautiful? The work of God in salvation. So we've seen, firstly, there's an important continuity, but secondly, the adoption of Jesus provides, in some way, a discontinuity. Jesus is not naturally part of David's line. Remember verse 16? Uh, Joseph is described as the husband of Mary. He's not described as the father of Jesus. He is not the natural father of Jesus. He is the adopted one. And therefore, the point is this. The one who leaves the womb of Mary doesn't carry the DNA of Joseph. Jesus is not part of the same line of sinners. There is something profoundly different to Jesus compared to everyone else in his family line. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is in fact born without the sinful nature inherent to all normal human births. And so you see, therefore, in one sense, the genealogy is trying to connect Jesus to Joseph, and it achieves that. But in another sense, it's making a distinction between Jesus and Joseph. Uh, Not only is the naming of Jesus important, the adoption, but also the name itself is vitally important. As we know, uh, in the Bible, names are usually significant. Uh, Names carry a meaning. They tell us something about the person. And never more so is this the case than for the baby in Bethlehem. The name Jesus will remind every generation thereafter why he came. Verse 21. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, The Hebrew version of Jesus is Joshua. Joshua, you recall, was the one who led the people into the promised land. And so Jesus leads his people into the heavenly promised land. So why does the creator of the universe take up residence in a womb that he had created? God got on his knees and he became an embryo in a fluid sack, not simply to show us how to live. He did it, we're told, to save people from their sins. It was a rescue plan. He came for sins, and he came for sinners like me and like you. And therefore, at Christmas, we remember God's wonderful solution to our biggest problem, sin. Tragically, it is possible for the wonder of this solution 
to be in some way lost upon us. I can identify at least four hazardous attitudes which work to undermine our appreciation of Jesus saving us from our sins. It's quite likely that in different degrees and in different ways, we can each identify traces of these or some of these in our thinking. Uh, For some people, it will mean they completely miss out on Jesus saving them from their sins. In other words, for some people, they still stand before God guilty and condemned. But for other people, it will result in them devaluing their appreciation of Jesus saving them from their sins. They are saved, but in some way the wonder and the joy at what Jesus has done for them in some way fades. Uh, The first hazardous attitude is to say, I have no sins to be saved from. Many in Australia today think this way. Uh, It's a view encapsulated in that famous line uttered by Paul Hogan in Crocodile Dundee. Me and God, we're good mates. You see, it just presumes that all is well between me and God. And it's blind to the reality of sin in our lives and the offense of sin to God. Such an attitude sees no need for Jesus. And yet to reject Jesus is to reject God's salvation plan. His name is Jesus because he saves us from our sins. A second hazardous attitude is to say, hey, I've sinned, but I'm not perfect. I'm only human. In other words, sin is excusable. And that is the great excuse of the 21st century. It's that idea that when we stand before God, he will somehow turn a blind eye to our sin, that he will some way wave us through with a nod and with a wink. And this view fails to understand God as he truly is. This view fails to understand God's moral integrity. God can't just wave us through without the problem of sin being addressed. Justice demands that the price for our sin be paid. And funerals are always a reminder of that, that the wages of sin is death. And that is why God sent Jesus. His name is Jesus because he saves us from our sins. A third hazardous attitude is to say, I have suffered so much in this life, God owes me. I recall a conversation I had with a Christian scripture teacher a while ago. I was asking him how his weekend had been. He explained how his father was now aged and very sick. He had been down in Adelaide that weekend caring for him. I asked him if his father had a Christian faith, and I'll never forget his reply. He said, he doesn't, but he has been through much suffering in his life. He will be okay. When we experience deep hurt and suffering, is there not a danger that we may respond sometimes in a similar way ourselves? Uh, Some people do experience an extraordinary amount of suffering, and I'm not in a position to say why they have suffered more than other people. And yet, it is a mistake to think that 
in some way, God owes us. You see, our suffering can point us to God, but our suffering can never make us right with God. Christ has suffered for us, and it is only his blood shed on the cross that can really pay the penalty for our sin. And therefore, forgiveness is a gift that we need to receive by faith. His name is Jesus because he saves us from our sins. And finally, a fourth hazardous attitude is to say, my sin is too big for God to forgive. Uh, Some people may have such a sensitive conscience that whilst they admit the problem, they think there is no solution, there's no way back. I was speaking to uh, a woman at a beach recently. Uh, She shared with me something of her life story. Uh, She was happily married with a child. However, when she was a teenager, she had had an abortion. Being from a Roman Catholic background, uh, she at the time spoke with her priest about it. And he told her there could be no forgiveness for such an act. And so she had carried the guilt with her to this very day. And yet Jesus came into the world personally to look her in the eye and say, I am the solution to your problem. I have come to save you from your sins, including the sin of abortion. If we are honest, are there not aspects of our lives and our hearts which we find ugly? Don't we then seek to hide that ugliness from those around us? We may be concerned that if they truly saw us as we are, our loved ones would stop loving us. However, before God, he sees us as we are. Before God, we are laid bare. And yet, the amazing truth is this. God still loves us. And that's a liberating truth. God is the only one who knows us fully and loves us fully. And therefore, no sin is too big for God to forgive. And it means we can therefore bring to him our basket of shameful ugliness because the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover every sin. You see, no matter what we have done, no matter what skeletons lie in our closet, it may be an abortion, it may be an affair, it may be a molestation, we may have accidentally killed somebody on the road, We may have mistreated our parents. We may have mistreated our children. I don't know what it is, but can I tell you this? Jesus looks us in the eye and he says, My name is Jesus, and I have come to save you from your sins. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, Thank you for sending Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins. Thank you that no sin is too great for him to forgive. Uh, We pray that each of us here would not slip into any of these mindsets we've considered in conclusion. These attitudes which in some way drain the wonder of what you've done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, we pray, help each of us to hold on to Christ through faith or to move towards that point where we do so. And help us to have a deeper sense of joy at Christmas, of the true wonder of what you've done for us through Jesus, the one who saves us from all our sins. Amen.